Today's episode takes an intimate look at cancer survivorship and the advocates who are quite literally delivering a cure. So while I'm out of the office on assignment, our Director of Operations, James Nash, will be sharing this very special episode that just happens to include his Aunt Deb. When we think of good health, we typically think about the amount of exercise we get, or the food that we eat, how much water we drink, using sunscreen when outside, or wearing a helmet when riding a bike. These are all good decisions that are within our power. But health is not always determined by the actions we take. Sometimes illness strikes despite our best efforts. In the U.S. alone, nearly 180,000 people of all ages and cultural backgrounds are diagnosed with a blood cancer or blood disease each year, like leukemia, lymphoma, sickle cell anemia, plasma cell disorders, inherited immune system, and metabolic disorders. And getting a diagnosis like this can be scary. We're left with a lot of questions, like what does this disease mean? Where does it come from? And perhaps most important of all, what goes into treating it? Today, modern medical research works overtime looking for cures and therapies to heal us. And true to the miracle that is the human body and body system science, there are now ways to achieve remission or even an all-out cure. Through very precise partnerships and life-saving donations of blood and bone marrow, we can oftentimes help people, people we've never even met. For one woman in Illinois, watching the horrors of 9-11 on her television sparked her own personal call to action. Surely, she thought, New York City hospitals would be in great demand for blood donations. And as a young, physically active mother of four, donating blood was the least she felt she could do. But an unexpected low-grade fever turned into something much worse, changing her life and bolstering her promise to help others in need. It's called Credo, and our story starts here. From the studios of Hum Productions, I'm James Nash, and this is Impactually. In 2001, Deborah Gill, my aunt, was a physically active, stay-at-home mom of four young children. She and my Uncle Dan settled within a stone's throw of siblings, allowing all of us cousins to grow up together and to stay close to family. In September of that year, America experienced the deadliest attack on U.S. soil when 19 terrorists hijacked four commercial airplanes and crashed into the World Trade Center towers, the Pentagon, in a field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania, killing 2,977 people, including 441 first responders, the greatest loss of emergency responders on a single day in American history. And like so many who vividly remember standing in front of our television sets in disbelief and great sadness, Deb knew that the call for blood was going to be big. And it was. From her home in Chicago, she made a routine appointment at her local hospital donation center, something she had done many times before. And so my sister-in-law, Denise, um, watched my kids, and I went to get blood, and <clears throat> I was rejected for a low-grade fever. And I went back about six weeks later and tried to get blood again, and I was rejected again for a low-grade fever. And finally, in December, I said, I am just so exhausted. I don't even want to work out. I don't want to do anything. And my husband looks at me, and he's like, 
you always want to work out what's going on. Right. So I just went to the doctor and they thought I had mono and they did a test and it came back. I had leukemia. According to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, every three minutes, someone in the U.S. is diagnosed with a blood cancer like leukemia, lymphoma, or myeloma. And they accounted for 9.8% of the nearly 2 million new cancer cases confirmed in 2021. Aunt Deb had acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or ALL. Now, it's typically found in children, and so she found herself in a very unusual situation. As a 35-year-old adult, it was like 1 in 35 million that I would get this type of leukemia. Now, do you have cancer in your family? Nope. Leukemia is just a random thing. Ever the optimist, Deb faced this new chapter of her life with a when-life-gives-you-lemons kind of attitude. For kids, it's a really, really treatable kind. And for adults, it's a possibly treatable kind. So that was really, if I had to get a kind, I got a good kind. But even a good kind of cancer comes with its own set of serious complications. To better understand blood cancers and treatments, Brooke spoke with Dr. Jessica Fogelsong, a hematology oncologist with Lori Children's Hospital in Chicago and a cancer survivor herself. I actually had a very rare cancer. Um, it's called adrenal cortical carcinoma. I had stage four um, in my early 30s, right when I finished my training. Um, and I, so I was a young attending and was hospitalized for about two years um, and had about a 5% um, three-month survival, which I don't actually like percentages and I don't use them very much. Yeah. But I'm one of the only people from that time period to be a long-term survivor from stage four, but now um, there are more and more. Blood cancers are unique in the way that they change how blood cells behave and how they work. Blood cells are made in the spongy material within the center of our bones, and the role of blood is simple, to sustain life. The blood inside you brings oxygen and nutrients to every part of your body so it can keep working. Blood also carries carbon dioxide and other waste materials to the lungs, kidneys, and digestive systems to be removed from the body. Blood fights infections and carries hormones around the body. So for someone with cancer, the normal blood cell development process is interrupted by the uncontrolled growth of abnormal cancer cells that prevent your blood from performing many of its functions, like fighting off infections and preventing serious bleeding. The other obstacle is traditional chemotherapy. It's very nonspecific. It just kills any rapidly dividing cell. The reason you lose your hair is because your hair follicles are rapidly dividing. Um, the reason you, you get low blood counts is because your blood, your bone marrow or your blood cells are turning over the most in your body of normal cells. But cancer cells are always more rapidly dividing than normal cells. So that's why chemotherapy is specific for cancer cells. It works because cancer cells are um, more sensitive to it because of the nature of cancer. To counter this, patients with blood cancers like leukemia sometimes undergo bone marrow, cord blood, or stem cell transplants to aid with their recovery. The transplant replaces diseased bone marrow with healthy tissue. The process involves taking a donor's healthy blood-forming cells and transplanting them 
into the patient's bloodstream through an intravenous catheter, also known as an IV. Then, the stem cells in the bone marrow begin to grow and make healthy red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets, all necessary defenses for a healthy immune system. But there's a catch. Before a person receives a transplant, a matching donor must be found using human leukocyte antigen typing, or HLA. HLA is a protein that the immune system uses to recognize good and bad cells in the body. This special blood test analyzes specific proteins that make each person's tissue type unique. For a successful outcome, the HLAs need to match both patient and donor. The good news is that donating bone marrow can be as easy and painless as donating blood. The bad news is there may not be enough matching donors for everyone in need. Like all modern advancements, this medical breakthrough was born through dire circumstances. It all started in 1978 when Colorado veterinarian Robert Graves and his wife Sherry were desperate for a way to save the life of their 10-year-old daughter Laura when her leukemia relapsed. For patients diagnosed with leukemia, lymphoma, and other life-threatening diseases, a bone marrow or cord blood transplant may be their best and only hope for a cure. In theory, the transplant replaces the damaged immune system with a healthy one. Laura's pediatrician informed them that there was a new and recent success with family-to-family -family bone marrow transplants. Since HLA types are inherited, siblings are often an ideal match for each other. Each sibling with the same biological parents has a 25% likelihood of being HLA identical with a transplant candidate. All three of Laura's siblings were tested, and while two were perfect matches for each other, no one matched Laura. And her story was not unique. 70% of patients who need a transplant do not have a fully matched donor in their family. As hope faded, they were offered the opportunity to participate in a first-of-its-kind experimental bone marrow transplant from an unrelated donor. An identical match was found through a 26-year-old clinical laboratory scientist who had occasionally donated platelets and blood to patients while working at a cancer research center in Los Angeles. The following year, Laura received her transplant. The success of the treatment inspired the Graves to give other families the same hope for a cure. For my Aunt Deb, just like Laura, no family member matched. So while she waited for a transplant, she was scheduled to start chemo. I was immediately thrown into the hospital. I started intense chemotherapy because for leukemia, there's no tumors and there's no radiation. So it's just basically you chemo to the point of poisoning yourself to death and just back up one step. But then the unexpected happened and she lapsed into a coma. Um, I went to, I was in a coma for three weeks. I developed sepsis. Oh my God. Um, when I came out of the coma, I had a, uh, full body paralysis from the neck down. All I could do is barely turn my head. Um, so I had to learn to walk, talk, swallow again. Um, I had a series of heart attacks, a series of strokes. Because I had the sepsis, it sort of was my own little personal chemo, they think, that sort of um, really helped kill off the leukemia. Um, so it was a really life-changing event that um, made me really appreciate life and all the gifts that I had. With this new lease on life, Deb felt compelled to give back. 
No longer able to donate blood because of her history with leukemia, she decided to donate something just as precious, her time. Um, I had a friend because of me, she, she knew somebody who became a volunteer. And so she became a courier. And because of her, then I became a courier. Thanks to Dr. Graves, a national registry of volunteers willing to donate bone marrow was born. In partnership with other patients, families, doctors, and Paul Laxalt, a U.S. senator from Nevada, they were able to secure $1.2 million from the Naval Medical Research Institute to establish the National Bone Marrow Donor Registry in 1986. The University of Minnesota assisted by providing the first computer program created to match patients with unrelated volunteer donors. The program, today called Be the Match, took off from a tiny office of the American Red Cross in St. Paul. Many people wondered who would step forward to donate marrow. Within the first year, a remarkable 10,000 people answered the call, and it wasn't long before the program took off worldwide. The national donor registry that the Graves started now has a database of 19 million people, and Be The Match has facilitated 111,000 transplants with nearly 6,700 in 2021 alone. But transferring the marrow from donor to patient is almost as remarkable as the act itself. We learn about the busy network of volunteers who ferry this life-giving material across the United States and the globe when we come back. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Impactually. The team at Hum Productions works hard to leverage our episodes with the incredible and inspiring impact of our guests. If you want to support the show and be more in the know of what's coming up with Impactually, you're invited to support us on Patreon. Whether it's branded swag, earning producer-level credits, gaining access to scripts, or learning what's happening behind the scenes, you can get those and more if you go to patreon.com forward slash Impactually. That's patreon.com forward slash Impactually. Walking through an airport on any given day, you might notice a ticketed passenger with just a backpack and a small hand-carried cooler. At security, TSA agents are careful to inspect these by hand, and once on board, you may see these passengers talking with gate agents or flight attendants to change a seat or request a different flight in the event of cancellation or even the slightest delay. To the untrained eye, this might seem strange. But it turns out that sometimes these cooler-toting passengers are volunteer couriers carrying a life-saving donation to a very sick patient at the other end. Someone with a blood cancer or a disease whose only option for a cure is a transplant. And for them, there is no room for error or delays. My name is Ruth Kessel. I've been with Be The Match for five years now. We have 532 active volunteers, but we also have 169 staff members that are trained as couriers. Working with these couriers is just something that you know gets me up in the morning and I have no problem working with them all day long. Root Kessel is the courier program supervisor at Be The Match, 
a not-for-profit research and donor transplant network. She oversees the hundreds of couriers delivering hope to patients all over the world. It's her responsibility to not only recruit and train new volunteers, but to mentor and coach them through stressful situations. With only a cooler and enough ice packs to make the less than 48-hour delivery from donor to recipient, lives are on the line and every minute counts. If a storm is coming, how do you get out? If the plane is delayed, where do you go? It, you have to be a very special person to be able to do this because you also have to have um, experience in traveling, be very um, independent when you travel and able to, you know, hey, the plane's gone, you know, there's weather or something, let's jump into a car service instead. For the couriers, it's not as easy as booking a flight or renting a car and jetting off. Some of the more mundane frustrations of travel are exacerbated when your carry-on is literally the life-saving materials someone is waiting for. And unlike some organ donations that may be transported unaccompanied and sometimes lost or damaged in transit, blood cell donations are always hand-carried. They have to hand-carry it because it's not allowed to be x-rayed at TSA and it's not allowed to go you know, in the belly of the airplane. Not everybody they're going to be interacting with is going to understand that. So at TSA, they're advocating to make sure this needs to be hand-checked. If you don't understand what I mean, go get a supervisor. So there's a lot of communication, a lot of advocating for this product. But then when that's all done, they head to their airplane. Many airplane staff are okay with the courier saying, this is my carry-on plus my you know, personal bag. I have two bags. Nothing can be checked because they need to be on the go. They don't have time to wait around at the baggage belt to get their bag. So everything has to go on the plane. When the planes are empty as they were in COVID, it's no problem. But when the planes are full as they are again, some gate agents might say, nope, our plane is too full. Everybody has to check their second bag. You can only have one. Well, that's when the couriers then turn on their charm and walk up and say, I can't do that. I need to keep both of my bags with me. Neither of them can be checked. And then they try to explain what they're doing with as little information as possible because they have to maintain that confidentiality again. You know, we have a little letter that we can show them to tell them that this is very important. The patient is waiting. You know, if, if you can't get it there in time, the patient may die. We really need to make sure that they understand the urgency of this situation. Most airline employees will in the end say, okay, we've had, you know, pilots step out of line because they were sitting there or something and say, this, this credo, that's what the cooler is called. I'll stay behind and the credo can have my jump seat. We've had all these situations where people step up and say, my seat can be the credo seat or whatever. It's, it's amazing. For Deb, the repercussions of not delivering on time is always on her mind. You, you do whatever you can to get the product there. Have you ever gotten to 36 hours and this is just, you are stuck? No, no. No, luckily I haven't had to do that, which is important because um, to receive a bone marrow transplant, they irradiate your body. So you no longer produce any of your own cells. So you are incredibly vulnerable waiting for your transplant. So every hour matters to get you back cranking again because you are so vulnerable, okay. um, which is how like when I got sick because I had no white cells fighting any infection at that time. Wow. We, we get them there. 
When it comes to finding couriers, volunteers must be a special type of person. You must be at least 21 years old to apply. You must successfully pass a security background check. You must have a valid driver's license for air travel and a major credit card with a $3,000 limit for reimbursed expenses. And you must have access to a personal smartphone with a data plan that covers various app downloads and usage. But that's not all. The responsibility demands a high level of dedication as well as flexibility. The time commitment is a minimum of six days per year, an average of three days per trip, and courier trips happen on weekdays, not weekends. In the recruitment, we look for very specific traits within our couriers. Okay. Most of them actually have skin in the game, as I call it, because they're either themselves donors or recipients. There's very specific questions in those applications that tell us what their motivation is. Mm -hmm. And if we read that and we see, oh, they just were interested in free travel, then that's, you know, right at the bottom of the pile. And uh, believe me, that pile is pretty high. So um, it, you have to be a very special person to be able to do this because you also have to have um, experience in traveling. Be, we do a background check. We check references. We have an interview, a conversation with them to get a more of a feel with them. And then if they do make the cut, um, then they are trained. There's online training. There's virtual training, four hours a virtual training face-to-face. -face. They also have a mentor that could be with them, texting all the time. Root's ideal candidate is a donor, a family member of a patient, or a former patient like Deb. That's really was the process. It was the interviews, them looking at my background, me just you know, making them comfortable that I knew what I was doing um, when I was traveling, that I handled problems fine. Okay. <laughs> Four kids, five years apart totally. But yeah, I can, you know, I, I, I'm flexible. I can go with the flow. I can figure it out. So, um, <laughs> so that's what they care about. So tell me about your first trip. So before your first trip, they call you up and give you extra support and make sure you know what you're doing. And then after that, they figure out who's going to do the trip. You're assigned to a travel coordinator who then books your flights, books your hotel. Um, okay. There's no cost to any trip. You get food per diems. You pick up at a, at a transplant center or a hospital, okay, and then you go to the uh, fly to the drop-off location wherever that is, and you go to the transplant center wherever the recipient is and drop it off there, and then you're done. Once it's out of your hands, there's no follow-up. HIPAA is totally protected. I, I they're numbers to me, so I know nobody. I know no history about them. I just know what their number is. I always refer to them by their number. Everything's checked by their number. Okay. Um, you know, everywhere we go, we have to always check the recipient number and the donor number, but that's the only identification I know from these people. That confidentiality is the same for professionals like Dr. Fogelsong. I've never met a person. They bring it to a cell lab that okay. is at the institution. So that's a whole nother group of people that are really important for stem cell transplant programs. Well, our transplant team is very multidisciplinary. Okay. So it is, there's a couple of physicians, but it, it takes a village. Like we have awesome nurse practitioners, awesome pharmacists, awesome child life, you know, coordinators, people that make my job much easier. So. Yeah. Sometimes people focus on the physician, but medical care is really uh, a team sport. But that's not to say that donors and recipients can never meet. Here again is Root. 
they can meet only after it's been over a year since the transplant. And if they both agree in writing that they would like to meet. And how often does that happen? Oh, my goodness. Maybe a third of the time, half of the time. It does not happen every time. That's for sure. Really? Mm -hmm. Jennifer Sines, logistics manager for Be The Match, says the reason donors and recipients don't meet tends to be for the patient's benefit. Sometimes, and the reason why we say that they can't meet the first year is we really want the patient to focus on getting well. Exactly. And we don't want them to think about, you know, what do I need to do for the pay- for my donor who saved my life, you know? And right. so we really want them to focus on that. And same thing for the donor side. If something happened to the patient and the patient weren't to make it, we don't want for them to have already met. And so, um, yeah. yeah, because it's, it's, um, it's pretty devastating on a donor. It's, it's very sad, you know, when you have to tell a donor that their patient passed away. This is what happened to Dr. Graves' little girl, Laura. Despite the success of the initial transplant, Laura's leukemia relapsed again, and she died of pneumonia on August 15, 1981, exactly five years after she was first diagnosed with cancer. But for every tragic ending, there is a joy. Like, I've had these most amazing stories where they've called me and said, you know, I found out my patient is in Chicago and I'm in Detroit. I'm on the, I'm right now in the car, you know, on my way. And so to meet, and so those are amazing too, um, to hear those stories. So when a donor and a patient do meet, are there stories that you're just like, this is, this is unbelievable, you know, like marriages or um, anything, you know, stuff like that. You know, I've seen, I've, I feel like I've seen it all. Um, I still cry when a donor and patient meet. Um, and I, I think, oh my gosh, I've seen so many of these, but it still, it just touches me. I've seen, you know, um, donors and patients be in each other's weddings. Um, I think I, I will tell you one of my most touching one in this group, because I care, they have a donor and patient meet every year. And I went to the, um, the dinner that night and the, um, the patient was from New York and he was a firefighter and he had been in 9-11 and had gotten leukemia afterwards. And the donor was a pastor in a really small town just on the border between Oklahoma and, um, and Texas and, and Arkansas and Texas. And, um, and so it was an interesting kind of meetup because we have this big old firefighter, you know, who had been sick and who comes down from New York with his New York accent. And then we have this little minister with his Texas accent um, and they meet and um, the, the patient ends up getting his, taking his medal of honor and giving it to the donor and saying, this is yours you know, you saved my life. You're the real hero. And I'm getting choked up even talking about oh, it. I mean, God. there was not a dry eye in the room, you know. For Dr. Fogelsong, some of her best days with her patients are the days that they get to meet their donor or recipient. The only time I get to see it is when I'm actually asked to pass along a note, like the letters back and forth. They're so sweet. Like you hear like a little five-year-old telling these donors about their life. So you know, they're just like telling them about Pokemon or they're telling them about, you know, Elf on the Shelf or (laughs) just going into their like 
their world. Now this is what I get to do. And I couldn't do this before. Like they're so sweet. And then the donor letters are just very inspirational. <laughs> so have you so ever I always, been part of that? I can yeah, I cry every time I see these letters back and forth. <laughs> It's these moments, this type of impact that makes joining the registry so important. Because just as there is a wide diversity of people in the world, so too does there need to be a wide diversity of donors. One thing that as you get into these issues of health equity that is really important is that um, most patients who are are white that come from a European background will have a match in the system where it is harder when you are a minority. And because it's not that people have different genes when they have a different race or ethnicity background, it's that they have a different dialect of what those genes are. And there's something I think that people have to understand is that A lot of times when we talk about different genes, people are talking specifically about different polymorphisms. They're not really different genes. They're the same exact gene. Like everybody has this gene. So that does make us human. But people from different ethnic groups have just a little bit of a different flavor. A lot of the genes involved in drug metabolism also have different polymorphisms. So let's unpack that. When a single entity, like a gene, behaves differently in different cases, it's called polymorphism. We all have the same genes, but differences in drug effectiveness and drug toxicity may depend on our racial or ethnic characteristics. The same holds true for the success of a transplant. Similarities in donor-patient ethnicities provide a better chance for a match. So diversity among donors is critical According to Be The Match, the likelihood of finding a match donor by ethnic background is 79% for white patients, 50 to 60% for Native American, Asian, and Hispanic, but only 30% for African American patients. For Jennifer, this need for diversification in the registry hits home in the heart. So, so for example, I, as you can see me, blue-eyed, red-headed, I have millions of matches in the registry, okay? I am plain Jane. And so if something happens to me, I feel pretty good that there's somebody in the, in the registry that's going to match me. I married a Hispanic. And so we've had these three children. And so they're half Hispanic and half um, Caucasian. And so I'm a little more nervous about them. What if there isn't somebody in the registry that's just like them? And so we really need people of all races, um, you know, in the registry, because we never know who is going to need it and who's going to be there for them. There's so much more to being a donor than just giving or joining the registry. Um, We do so much for the patients. They can get money to be reimbursed for all the gas mileage going to and from the hospitals. Um, We pay for childcare while they have to go in for chemo. And so any little bit financially that you can, you can give um, to the program, A, it it helps the program. um, And we use the money um, 
um, to help these patients. But also we do get money from the government and it shows the government that the, the, the community is behind us, right? We're able to tell them, you know, X amount of people gave um, financially or supported us this year. And it, and it really shows the government to continue to back us because, you know, we have major support from our community and, and um, the people that we love. And Be The Match is always accepting possible donors. If you're interested in, in joining the registry, all we do is swab your cheek. You stick it back in the mail, fill out some information. We can find your DNA from there. Really easy. And while they accept donors of all ages, if you're, let's say, of the VHS, leg warmer, or MTV generation, perhaps you should urge your kids to donate. And what we have found in our more than 30 years of data is, and I hate to say it, close your ears if you're over 40, but younger stem cells do better for the patient. They recover faster. They have less side effects. It just, it, it makes sense. While most stem cell transplants are through known kin, there is a small chance you can help someone you've never met. As a former cancer patient and now courier, Deb understands the value and beauty of a community joining hands. It was a community that saved my life. They fed my family. They took my kids on outings. Anybody who heard people who I don't know were wonderful and gave us tickets to events, something, anything to distract the kids, anything to feed the family. I, it's sort of a joke. People brought salads every night, it seems, and they always brought a bottle of salad dressing. So in my pantry, I ended up with over a hundred bottles of salad dressing. And it's my favorite thing now. I just love seeing salad dressing bottles. It just makes me smile. Um, but it really, it was my, the, the community that I lived in was unbelievable and took care of us. And, took, and that way I could fight the fight I needed to fight. The cure for blood cancer is in the hands of ordinary people. For more information on volunteering as a courier or registering to be a donor, visit bethematch.org. Adding yourself to the donor base is safe and painless. All it takes to get started is a cheek swap. Volunteering, hosting or attending a registry event, signing up for email updates, and talking with your friends are all simple ways that you can make a big impact. And of course, running organizations like Be The Match is not insignificant. So financial gifts help patients find matching donors underwrite the expenses of couriers and provide families with the care and support services that they need. You could be the answer to saving someone's life. Impactually is created and produced in cooperation with Hum Productions. Our web address is hum, that's H-U-M-M productions.com. Financial support for the show is provided by JLB Images and listeners like you who support us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash impactfully. We'd like to extend our sincerest thanks to our guests, Deb Gill, Root Kessel, and Jennifer Sines. You can find more information about them and the work that they do at bethematch.com. Additionally, we'd like to thank Dr. Jessica Fogelsong at Lori Children's Hospital in Chicago for her personal and professional insights in the field of oncology and stem cell transplantation. Special thanks to the band Avocado Squad for sharing the single Park off their new LP, Sushi Tuesday. We have a link to their website and social media in our show notes, and their music is available on all major streaming platforms.
and to our team, Brooke Bechtel, executive producer and creator, Christine Murdoch, senior producer and editor, Jacob Motz, head writer, director of production, Jack Bechtel, sound engineering by Andy Shoemaker, music curation by L. Lively of Crooked Tree Creative, Richard Cassis of Spark Inc. for digital artwork, Andrew Sachs for our original music, and I'm James Nash, Director of Operations and narrator of this episode. Subscribe and listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Radio Public, or wherever you find your podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. We really appreciate it as it helps others find us too. We would love to hear from you, so please send us an email or find us on social media. Pitch us ideas about people you think that would be great to have on the show. Maybe it's even you. We'll be back soon with another extraordinary episode. Everyone has a story. Share. Share.